City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Right, mics go on. Five seconds, I was told, and mics went on. It's all very efficient. That's enough here. of a warning, it's, isn't it? Oh, it's, that's it. We'll go now. That's it. We'll just put a couple of records on and go <laughs> on. Um, um, just uh, apropos of our uh, well, it's this city limits, isn't it? I'm Kevin Healy, and you're Meg Kimber, and um, Meg Kimber's the most important one because without her, we wouldn't get to air. Mm, uh, some people might therefore think she's not the most important we'd get one. To we it. <laughs> <laughs> we'd, we'd get to air, but we wouldn't know what was going on in the Herald. No, that's right. Yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. And it is our it is a fourth Wednesday and we're gonna look at two subjects today. We're gonna to look at universities because yeah. we mentioned a couple of weeks ago how Victoria University had put a a vote to its staff, and I don't quite know the result, but I hope they voted against it. I think the result came out a few days ago. I don't know the result either. But, but they, yeah. will, they wanted to lower their wages and conditions and claims that staff have to now adjust to the fact that unis haven't got much money and they've got to accept lower wages and conditions, etc. Yep. And we're going to talk to a... Well, you'll take the person up. Tell us about it. Um, George Maxwell is I'll a... I'll pour some tea while you're doing that. Yeah. yeah. Um, George is a sessional uh, casual worker at a university and has been kind enough to... Uh, volunteer to come on the show and talk about her experiences in that role and s- answer some questions just about how, you know what the conditions are get uh, so listeners can get an idea of of uh, what kind of environments people are working in in the university. I know a little bit because I have friends who do that work. So, uh, you know, you just hear from conversation what this kind of uh, conditions are like. But um, I guess there's kind of two levels to it. There's the level of politics and policy and and university policy and how the unions are working in the NTEU in particular. So we were talking before, Kevin, that maybe we'd have someone from the NTEU on a later yeah. show. Well, Colin Long, who's currently the secretary, is coming on in two weeks' time to talk about climate change and environment, though, because, in fact, he's switching jobs. He's moving from the union um, in a few weeks to work at Trades Hall on climate change. Yeah. Secret, but we can raise some of those issues with him, I'm yeah, sure, because he, he's done a number of years as secretary of that union, state secretary of the union. Yeah, there's other, I mean, there's other reasons. I, too, talk to, you know, I've got a number of friends who are academics, and mm-hmm. one of the big problems is the fact that while unis are encouraging, particularly the bigger unis, are encouraging so many overseas students, yep. um, for lecturers and, and, uh, and staff, it's a real problem just in correcting papers and getting papers in, in yep. with people who haven't really got the language. Yep. And how do you judge yep. you know, someone who's written something um, and whether they really know what, you know, it's, it's all those problems of yeah. language then come into it, which, which really affect the staff as well. So, and, yeah. and also like student rights and, and you know, how people students are treated by universities if you've got a class that's majoritively non-english speakers then surely if as a student you know these international students are paying huge amounts of money to have these courses delivered to them and if they're um you know being brought into the courses with this idea that they're going to learn a particular thing um and then aren't able to actively like effectively learn it 
then what about, you know, the responsibility of the university to deliver a course that's relevant and applicable and, and appropriate yeah. for the students? For the, and for yeah. when they go home again, of course. Exactly, and, yeah. and indeed, that, that's another factor, the fact that those, their home countries now are, are developing better quality yep. universities. So exactly. there's going to be less of that. And that's part of the factor that's now being raised about the uni's funding, that as that funding dries up, they'll put more pressure on staff to take more cuts, etc. Yeah, yeah, because course, it's a bubble, really. Yeah, and it, yeah, but it comes back ultimately, of course, to the fact that governments have just been cutting funding for tertiary education, and that's where the that's where yep. the crux really lies. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And and we're also going to talk later in the program to one of our regulars or irregular regulars um, or regular irregulars or whatever he is, uh, Doctor uh, P- Professor Paddy Moriarty these days, and because um, there's there's an article in the last week we're up in Queensland. Uh, they're developing a waste um, energy, a waste to energy um, facility mm. using uh, common waste, and that uh, it could it, it will have enough power to run a town like Cairns. Um, so it's but, like burning waste. Or? Well, yeah, at least yeah. We're going to ask Patty about how okay. do, one. How do you do it? And secondly, the article does refer that some places have rejected these because of environmental concerns. So mm-hmm. what are they? Yep. Um, so we'll talk to Patty toward the end of the show about some of those issues as well. Patty, Patty of course, is in this. He researches all these things out at Monash and um, on the Caulfield campus where he where he sits himself up and. Mm. And has a lovely life out there. <laughs> so that's that. Okay, so let's get on to a couple of smaller things. And, and thanks, by the way, to a listener who sent in a number of cuttings and things. I'm going to use one this morning, I think, uh, last week, and asked us if we could also talk about water and facilities. We haven't done that a lot lately. We used to do it a lot when the yeah. when the, um, the thing was being built down at Wontake. The waste the recycling. recycling. Is that being um, used? Well, I think it is now a little bit, yeah, yeah but we were... Whether it is or not, we pay them billions. Mm. Um, even, but no, it was because when they started using it, you might recall mm. they had to stop using it because everything had rusted because they hadn't used it, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, so they had to fix it all up again. But that's yeah, so uh, that's been one of the great facilities. Yes, but, indeed. But he does talk about the fact that we're heading toward periods of less and less water and how we're going to handle it. So, uh, and it is something we should talk about. So we will and thank thank him for the. That's the a kind really good topic. The, yeah. We could do that one of the um, one of the. Fourth Wednesdays we could, of a month. We could, yeah. yes, that's yep. right. So we'll pick up on that one. Yeah. But just to pick up on the, you mentioned the old Herald Sun. We can't go without <laughs> it, can we? But look, last week that story they ran on the front page, which we picked up on about um, pay dirt or whatever it was for the workers on the on the tunnel uh, yep, and yep. Uh, how they're getting all this bloody money actually yep. paying workers. <sighs> uh, looking at it later, I noticed when you turned over the page, they actually used the phrase the eye watering wages or something, and you think, <sighs> you know, what what bit of that is objective journalism? And oh which, which journalist worth his or her salt, and I can't think whether it was he or she who wrote it, uh, would actually write such crap? Yeah. And maybe it was changed in the sub-editorial room, of course. It's so partial. Is that a word? Well, yeah, Opposite yeah, I of it, impartial? I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Yes, I think, I think it does indicate perhaps a little bias of uh. some sort. But this week they've done, they've done another report on, on government's... Um, um, government reports, and here's what we've found. Fat cats pump up pay bill. Scores of pen pushers get 180000 plus. Now, again, they're complaining about ordinary workers getting reasonably good salaries. Pen pushers. Pen pushers in the state government. Now, I don't think you take them out. I mean, the answer uh, to all these problems is get rid of workers altogether. Yeah, automate everything. Well, no, just have let the bosses do the work. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but pay them... 
Yeah, like, I'm, I'm going, if I get round to it, I'm going to come up to the, the fact that um, Innes Willocks, um, one of our favourites from the Australian Industry Group, this week, in fact, um, says that you know, the proposals to, to provide super for lower-income workers and help women mm-hmm. uh, will add extra cost to employee, employers and the cost to the employers will, let go, uh, mm-hmm. uh, will cost much more than the value to the worker. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think for Innes we should suggest you know, if, if workers are a cost, get rid of them. Yeah, but, that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, workers also make profit for bosses, so maybe they're not a cost. <laughs> it's a tough one, isn't know. it? Gee, it's tough, isn't yeah, it, to work these things? It's hard to work we, it out. we just don't understand these mm. things. Now, this is an interesting one as well, though, when we're screaming out for money for public housing and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, details of the state government's $225 million deal with the AFL to redevelop what is now. Well, they use the two names, but I call it Dicklands because that stadium was built by men in suits for men in suits and footballers right. and things. But anyway. Right. Um, I'm assuming you mean Docklands. That's what they right. mean, yeah. But they, they, they use the, the commercial title and it's changing. It's going to change from one to the other apparently. What's the commercial title? Well, there's an airline and then I don't know what the other mob oh, do. Oh, okay, right. But anyway, the... The, I've never heard of the other mob, but oh, okay. um, well, I'll say it, Marvel. I don't know what Marvel does. It's going to be called Marvel Stadium. You're kidding. Well, like the comic company. According to this. Um, okay. But there's 225 mil of hours going into what is effectively a private enterprise. I mean, yeah. you know, football today is all about money. It's nothing to yeah. do with sport, really, other than they, they play it just to get the money. Yeah. Um, and here we have – and we're doing – and we've just done a deal again to um, – to build at Cadinia Park, which also has a commercial title these days, the Geelong Footy Ground. Okay. Uh, they've just uh, they've previously put thousands into millions into that, but now they've agreed to put more millions into that um, of public money. Yeah. Again, to to support um, again what are professional bodies who should be paying for their own. Mm. But the other factor of this is um, the the AFL has also been given a one dollar annual peppercorn lease rent. Mm. For forty years on a on a parcel of government land at New Quay in Docklands to set up their new headquarters. Okay. One dollar a year. Yeah. Wow. That's I wouldn't bad, mind paying a dollar a year. No. Rent. We talk. We talked housing last week. We yeah. talk at what least once a month, and we talk about the problems of people being able to afford a dollar a year. Wouldn't be too bad. If they wanted it to be a commercial enterprise, I could make some jams. Or yeah, chutney, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it could make it. But you make a, a good of, chutney, do you? Oh, my mum does. I might <laughs> right. just get her to come up. And, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, just an idea. But um, but there's a lot of rules about making having your private residence a commercial enterprise. That's the problem. I'd have to get a kitchen license, and you know, next thing you know. Oh dear, you know. that's right. Yeah, that's right. So a dollar a year would become. <laughs> Maybe I could start a football club. In that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, make start a football club. I'll yeah. give it to you. It's okay. Okay. Oh, will they? Yeah. Okay. Oh, as long as it's a professional footy club, not yep. an amateur one. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned a few weeks ago about this mob called South Thirty Two, which was a, was an offshoot of BHP. Ah, uh, yeah. And how in Colombia they'd been done in court, which shows how serious it was over there because they've yeah. been over backwards to help these people. Yeah. Um, at um, a mine, the Cerro Matoso mine, and the uh, the court ruled that 
the um, the seven Indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities around them had all these diseases, including lung cancer mm. and incredibly high nickel levels in blood and urine, which yeah. the company denied had anything to do with it. And I would have thought, if you're running a mine next to them and they've got these high levels, uh, yeah. there's a rough chance there's a connection, I would have thought. Yeah. Anyway, they appealed as they said they would. And the and they were the original order was that they pay may, pay damages to the communities and also provide permanent health care, mm. and in at appeal they won the former and they haven't got to pay any compensation at all now to the people. <clears throat> they've still got to shameful. they've still got to push on with the health care, but no compensation. Uh, but they now say they're going to appeal against that as well. Um, they'll keep oh, appealing and keep yeah, it's appealing. It's actually sickening. It, it is, and they in fact say, this is interesting given the fact that they've been sued and the court found that they caused all this disease and deaths, obviously deaths involved in that, yeah. and these high levels of, of um, nickel in blood and urine. Production is not, this is, the, this is what they say themselves, production has not been impacted by the decision handed down by the court. That's good news, isn't it? That's thing. great keep, news. Keep making a quid. Yeah. And we remain proud of the positive contribution we make to supporting social and economic growth within the local community surrounding Chero Matozo. Well, we, th- their contribution has been disease, death and uh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So they're proud of that. They haven't specified health on their, on their, what they're proud of, have they? No. Social no, and no, political. They, they didn't say they're proud people, of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which I suppose is good of them. Yeah, well, they're, they're yeah. focusing on their positives. <laughs> I can't, which is what? <laughs> no, they're, they, they're proud. Well, they focus they're making on, money. They focus on their positives by saying nothing at all, actually. Uh-huh. They, they gave no example of how they've helped people. Yeah, so, yeah given, right. Given there is none. Yeah. Um, now, this is a bit of a worry. Um, on similar lines, Adani... Um, has been charged at hits court next month uh, with that spill we talked about when it happened uh, when they they during the um, the cyclone last year when they released water into um, uh, yep. at Abbott's point yeah uh, at Abbott point um, and they discharged much more than they're allowed I mean they shouldn't be allowed to discharge any as I see it but when that sort of thing happens and there's floods and things they're allowed to discharge stuff into the into the atmosphere yeah uh, and they discharged heaps more than they even even were given permission for mm. um, and the anyway since then there have been investigations and the, the the state government over there is now charging them and, and they they face fines of up to 2.7 million mm. over this breach. But it's really interesting because going back, they denied they'd broken anything. This now going back to March when um, this happened, or just after it happened, they were um, they they denied anything, and they they said that um, they said that they they significant and extensive testing and monitoring was carried out, and there were no environmental problems, and that they met their license conditions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they, the other factor is, and this is an interesting one, they were accused at that time, and I'm not sure it's in the new charges or not, of tampering with water samples sent to the department in relation to the Cyclone <laughs> Debbie incident. So, in fact, wow. um, one of the charges is that the water sent wasn't actually the water you know, oh. where they released it, so one assumes. So. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Can this get any more ridiculous? Um, well, yes, it can. It could be built. <laughs> yeah, they could build the bloody mine. Yeah. <laughs> but let's hope always keeps them at bay. Yeah. That's all we can say. Yeah. Um, the um, Another one, the, the that 
northern body and it was sent up mercilessly by one of those ABC programs um, which had the one about one about politics uh, oh the chaser what no it was one of the well, yeah, it was one no it was one of those ones those sitcoms about politics but anyway oh. the northern the northern development fund which you know the, where nothing had been spent at all they were trying to find ways oh, of spending it whatever yeah. the episode was okay. well they're still in the same boat now as I say we're crying out for we know the areas we're crying out for money for which can't get money yeah but the government is pleading with the infrastructure fund this northern northern infrastructure fund to spend more than five billion of its budget ahead of the federal election because <laughs> they can't they've only spent eight hundred million so far um, oh. and um and so you've got the government begging them to spend five billion on anything just spend it <laughs> um, That's classic. Uh, when that money could be going into areas that that really need something, and you don't just um, confect something in order to gain this is votes, the, presumably. This is the problem with top-down governance that you get money. People think, well, we need to allocate money somewhere. We'll allocate it this place, and then we'll work out what we'll spend it on. Instead of listening to people and communities that are saying, like, this is what would really help us. Um, these are the kind of services that we need. These are the kind of things that we've already developed, and we'd like them to be like resourced. Yes. So. Bit of a shame. Yep, and yeah. a, a cutting that our, our friend said in last week, I, I didn't pick it up at the time. Actually, it was in the Age uh, a week or so ago. Um, that we did deal with the issue some time ago. The state government sending off, selling off the land register, the it's state yeah. land register, and we hope trying people people in the ALP were trying to stop it, but they've got away with it because the yeah. the treasurer palace was gung ho about it. Yeah, they've sold them for two point nine billion. Wow. Um, but it, um, you know, they say they, the government's going to use it for infrastructure and growing the economy and creating more jobs, the usual crap they go on with. It's so short-sighted. Um, well, that's right. And, and in fact, the opposition pointed out, and I think in this case quite correctly, and the union has as well, that the government has been attacking privatisation over energy and saying that's that's been the cause of the problem. But here they are, gung-ho and going mad. And it was actually Samantha Ratnam from the Greens who said that. Yeah, um, right. But um, And it points out that in New South Wales, the privatisation of its titles registry reportedly resulted in fee hikes for property searches. Well, what a, who thought it wouldn't? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I mean, Someone's, of course. Some private company spent $2.9 billion yes. buying that. And, and, and all the information it gives them about people's assets and property and, and finances, etc. Wow. Um, so um, it has been flogged. They've got a... A lease for um, I don't know, you know numerous years mm. on that. So there mm. we are, and and at, and attached to that, um, he got, he sent a letter from the Age dated the thirtieth of the thirtieth uh, of the uh, of last month, August. Mm. Um, and the writer David Beatty of Ferntree Gully writes, Victoria's land titles office has been privatised. This means no more government guarantee of your title and vastly increased fees and inefficiency. Proper government-backed land titles, the basis of the Victorian economy, have been swept away. Titles will become more insecure. We may need to take out title insurance and fees will go to the roof, but by then it will be too late. Oh, well, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> um, oh, well. <laughs> so resigned. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so uh, that's that. Look, should we go to our first guest, do you reckon? Yes. I'll put on a little song and then we'll be back in a moment. And you're back on City Limits. 
This is uh, 3CR. Thanks and for joining apologies us. Apologies there because we didn't realise there was a bit of swearing hey. in that thing to be played. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. 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 <laughs> nice track. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was um, Karen Sheeter Band playing No Hope ATC. And we're joined, oh, yeah, we're joined by George, who's a 3CR uh, personality and also um, coming to talk to us today in her capacity as a sessional worker at a Australian University. Yes, I hear. I hear George Tuesday mornings on Bricky Show. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but today she's on city limits, so she's really come up in the world. <laughs> well, she's progressed in time. In, in or, like, or many, many might say gone down. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to be, to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, George. Can, you, can we start by just asking you what your role is at the university and, and what yeah. that involves? Yeah, definitely. So I work at a couple of unis, actually, yeah. as, a, um, as a casual tutor. And so I usually do about two subjects a semester. And so my work involves uh, planning classes, running classes, doing the marking, and student consultations as well. So it's quite a kind of holistic job, I guess. Yeah. There's a lot of preparation time involved in that, or what's the ratio between, yeah, performance, like not performance, but being there in the class and and preparation? I mean, it's huge. For me, I like like to be really, really prepared. I really want it to be enjoyable for students. So I end up spending so much time uh, putting things together, which I don't think you necessarily have to do, but I think it just Mm. makes a big difference for people's enjoyment and learning and being able Mm. to facilitate that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I and I also enjoy it, but um, yeah, mm. a lot of that work is not is not paid and not acknowledged. Yeah, about to say, do you get preparation time for all the amount of preparation you must be putting in? I presume you don't get paid for all that, obviously. No, I mean the the out, you get paid for the hours that you're tutoring, and they sort of, in, um, I guess, assume they incorporate <laughs> that work outside of class time in that, but it's not really enough to cover it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's pretty tricky. I think generally there's a quite an uh, people underestimate how much time is actually required to prepare a class uh, as a tutor or a teacher. I know my friends who teach even in the high school setting um, spend hours of their own time, unpaid weekends and holidays, and after after outside of school hours. Yeah. In preparation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's so huge. I guess it's a really creative thing because you're trying mm-hmm. to think of ways that you can present ideas and information to students so that they will feel interested and want to participate. But that, that can take a lot of time to sort of firstly get your 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 own head around what the what what the content is and mm-hmm. then find ways to kind of like make it interesting. Um, and I yeah, I imagine for high school teachers it would be a huge a huge amount of work as well. Yeah, because you're dealing with students who are not necessarily as engaged because perhaps they you might be able to assume that at university level people have chosen topics that they're actually interested in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, yeah, there's a bit of a challenge there in terms of I, I see a lot of my students have been quite apolitical and so a lot of the subjects that I, I do are in politics or gender studies and I, it's tricky to try and sort of think of ways to get them to think, you know, and actually want to want to yeah. contribute in class. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of students that definitely want to be there and you can see that, which is good. Yeah. Uh, one of the problems I'm you know, talking to various lecturers I know, um, one of the problems with the, the spate of overseas students we get is just the mm. fact that if, they, if they've got very poor English, it's very, very difficult, one, to lecture yes. them, but two, then yes. to, to correct anything they've written um, and, and really know whether they really know or not, if you follow. Yeah. Definitely. It's, a, it's actually a huge issue because 
you know, you're, you're trying to cater a class to people of a lot of different different needs and, you know, in terms of, you know, whether or not they speak English as a first or second language. And in terms of marking, if you mark, you know, according to the criteria, you actually should penalise students quite heavily if they do have a lot of issues with their grammar and, and, and whatever, mm. which is quite unfair when the universities rely on, um, on the fees that international students pay uh, but they don't actually provide adequate support for these students. Mm, yeah, we which is yeah something that I know this is a, quite a big problem at the moment. Is that something that's being discussed um, in the setting of like union and and action on industrial relations within the universities? If you're aware of that, yeah, I'm actually not sure. Uh, yeah. To be perfectly honest, and I know this is, you know, I'm I'm not proud of myself. I'm not I'm not especially involved in what my union is actually doing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, so I'm not quite sure if that's something that they, they're thinking about. I do know that um, issues around casual, casual and sessional staff sometimes aren't given as much attention as they could. Mm. Um, and I think there's a big issue around, you know, people not joining their union. Mm. Um, yeah. So they, they don't have a lot of power at the moment, which is... Which I mean, is quite unfortunate. Yeah, it's an interesting situation when, I mean, a lot of people who who are working casually and sessionally um, may not even have the kind of financial capacity yes. to yeah. engage with the union in that way that other other uh, types of employment can allow. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. If, you're, if you're employed casually and you don't know if you're going to be in a job in mm. six, you know, six months' time... Yeah. It's tricky to kind of make that decision to join your union, you know, based off that. Um, so, yeah, I guess the casualization is such a huge problem. I was reading on the um, NTU website that mm-hmm. um, that over 50% of university um, teachers are casual staff members, mm. which is huge to have that, that, that high percentage of your staff being casual. You know, I think that causes a lot of problems, and it's, it's not just for staff, but it's also for the quality of education that students are getting. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back, I guess, George, to um, the fact that, that, and we've argued before here, that under Howard, he effectively began and, and almost completed the process of universities turning from tertiary edu- institutions into into running as businesses yes, and having to be yes. commercial. And in that period, the vice-chancellors across the board pretty well, and Davis at Melbourne was a classic example, went along 100% with Howard instead of resisting it at that stage when they might have fought the thing off. Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's such a huge issue. I mean, all of these problems really come down to this neoliberal business model in which most of you know, Australian universities are currently operating, and it just has such harmful effects for, for staff because mm. no one values the work that you're doing. You have to work more hours. You're in casual positions. You're in, in, in insecure positions. And students are kind of... It's like they're part of this business model as well. They see their degree as just like getting, getting the grades and mm-hmm. getting out. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's a lot of stuff that's lost out of that in terms of valuing, you know, being there and learning and um, being in this environment. And it's really, uh, yeah, I've seen that change a lot mm. since, since I was a student. Mm. Yeah. And regarding this sort of the the, um, the effects of that in terms of conditions, you mentioned how, um, you know, staff don't feel supported. If you yeah. if you have a huge casual workforce, then it's uh, possible that people will just be passing each other and not really engaging with one another, and so staff don't have that same opportunity for getting together and talking and and maybe like working collectively. Have you noticed that personally? Yeah. What's it like for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that's that's definitely a big part of it. There's 
it's kind of quite an isolating job, I suppose, because you mm. don't have that. There isn't that sort of push to engage with other tutors and work together. So you might even have, you know, a subject where there are, I'm doing a subject this semester where there, there's about eight other tutors, mm. a huge um, mm. cohort. Mm. But I, I, don't, I don't really know the other tutors very well. We don't work on things together. We don't brainstorm ideas for how to run classes. It's mm. just you do your own individual work. Mm. Um, and I think that would be a really fantastic thing to actually be working together on that stuff and it would make your job a lot easier, but there just isn't that incentive to do that. Mm. Um, and there's almost a bit of a competitive element, I think, because it's so hard to get these positions so you sort of you, you're friendly with people, but you're also aware that you know they might end up getting a job over you for the, the next semester. So it's kind of a, it's not a very um, it's not the best environment, I suppose. But it's also better for students, obviously, because you know if you consistency, if you you can get together and dovetail what you're doing, you're not going to be crossing each other either, and maybe people yeah. people hearing the same lecture twice or something. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that I think it would work so much better if there was that consistency, and each class was actually doing the same you know, running the mm. same class. But mm. I have no idea what the other tutors are doing in their, in their tutorials. Yeah. yeah. So students could have really different experiences. And it also seems really inefficient from the university's point of view, like uh, in terms of double up of, of effort and resources and, and each, each um, casual tutor having to do all of their own kind of preparation work. That's unnecessary kind of. Yes. But yeah. they're, if they're getting that, that time for free, then they don't really mind, I suppose. Yeah, and I think the way that they would defend it is that, you know, they might give us a couple of discussion questions for each class. Yeah. But that really, uh, that's really, I, I feel that that's very much part of this older style of teaching where you just, like, ask the students whether they've done the readings or not and you shame the students that haven't done it and then you throw out a bunch of questions and say, like, talk about this. Yeah. And then you sit there and go on your emails or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think, <laughs> which is apparently what a lot of tutors still do. And they wow. ask a question and then if people don't answer, they just sit there in silence. Yeah. I've exper- I remember I, experiencing yeah. that sometimes in some not oh, yeah? very good tutorials when I was at uni. Yeah. <laughs> which is just awful. That's not a way to learn. No. Like, I think, and I think students, are, they, they want to have a more interactive class. They want tutors to actually be going over content that was covered in the lectures mm-hmm. and, and making activities that are, that are fun. Mm. But that, I think that's where that extra work comes into play and the university isn't really asking that of you or expecting that. Mm. Um, but they're also not recognising the fact that a lot of tutors are probably doing that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, another problem for, well, I'd say at VU is a good example where they've got campuses all over the place, and most unis now do have campuses all over the place. Um, the, the, the movement between, if you've got to give a lecture or a, stu- a tutor so as one, and then maybe half an hour later another one, you're suddenly rushing across town or whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's a further problem, isn't it, in terms of one time and cost and everything else? Um, just in terms of, of getting your life together. Yeah, totally. So the, the logistics of, yeah, of that. I mean, I feel that because um, on one day I have four classes um, and three of them are pretty much in a row. Yeah. So it's pretty, I, they, yeah, there's just all of these factors, I guess, where they don't really consider the actual, you know, what that's actually like for the tutor to be running around and doing all of these things and, um Trying to juggle that in one day is pretty full on. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I think maybe perhaps our last question um, yeah. is: uh, How do you feel about? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure Kevin's on board with that, but um, <laughs> we'll see if he has more. Sorry, I, got a couple, I, got another, I just well, I want to make one more comment. But anyway, go on. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just going to check in about um, in terms of 
this casualization and this kind of workforce that's casualized and the 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 insecurity of tenure that that um that that, that has mm. for yourself how do you feel about like the possibilities for continued work and also yeah, like right. professional development in that field yeah that's a great question i mean yeah it's so hard to get tenure these days mm. i hear i would love for me i'm so passionate about teaching and the mm. teaching side of being in academia and I would I would absolutely love to have an ongoing career but mm. I, I don't really know if that's um that's really going to be a possibility for me and a lot of it comes down to your research and you know mm. these other things that make make you look more impressive as opposed to the actual quality of your teaching mm. um mm. but yeah to think about it as an ongoing job um for me would be be a really really cool thing and actually I just I this is sort of changing a track a little bit but there is something I really wanted to mention about the impacts of of these changes um, for students. Mm. I think it's a massive problem that I think all of these changes mean that only some students can actually succeed at uni. Mm. The ones that don't actually need support from tutors because they're not paid to provide that support. There tends to be students that understand how the system works, who Mm. have either gone to private schools or have had privileged um, educational backgrounds mm. are able to go to uni and do quite well, but it's the ones that actually haven't had those experiences that go there and feel like they don't know what's going on, they don't feel supported. Mm. And I think the bottom line is that it just creates really bad outcomes for them. Mm. Yeah, because there's huge dropout rates and that's probably yeah. those students that yeah. are really needing some, just some support and just don't the, the, the system doesn't allow for that. Yeah. Well, yeah, going back in my day, though, campus life on, on campus life was part of whole uni life, whereas that doesn't really happen much anymore because yeah, right. students are yeah. less on campus. They're putting part-time work, and a lot of it's done online. So, yeah. you know, you just there's not that whole campus life is is dying. Yes, you just get in and get out, and there are so many. There's so much more responsibilities on students to support themselves financially, which would be a lot more difficult now than it used to be, yeah. I imagine. I mean, back back then, most of the anti-war movement was organised on campus, so, <laughs> mm. um, <laughs> which would be pretty hard to do these days. Um, yeah. But, but there's, this, this interview actually emanated from the fact that Victoria University, for one, is trying to cut wages and conditions of staff at the moment. Yeah. But you had yeah. a bloke, bloke called Danny Sampson, who's um, Professor of Management at Melbourne, he came out and said uh, staff should brace for higher workloads, lower salary increases and, and for redundancies. And he says all wow. universities are under similar pressure and will turn to staff and ask them to share the pain. If that means the university sector is becoming more like the private sector, then that's what it should be. Now, comment wow. on that com- Pretty comment on that comment. <laughs> I just couldn't disagree with, more with everything that that man has said. You don't ab- <laughs> what? You don't agree with that? <laughs> no. I mean, that's just that's a load of what you know. I don't want to swear on radio, um, but that's just awful. I mean, that's just that is not going to be beneficial for anybody. Um, and I can't imagine how someone could be so blatant, you know, in that in in that opinion. Um, we should get George on City Limits more regularly, yeah. I think. <laughs> or we could get Danny on, Danny on with George, and they, they can debate it. That's so oh, true. Yeah. Love to, love to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess this, you know, this is we've also seen universities um, start to take funding from arms manufacturers and defend mm. it as you know because they're um, you know they're having to cut costs and they need to get money from somewhere. But I don't. There's all of these really significant ethical questions, I suppose. 
in regard to funding, and it's really problematic. Mm, absolutely, and this is hopefully something we can bring up again on another city limits. We'll have a guest from the NTU coming up in in a few weeks. So, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. But thanks so much, George. It's been really fun to have you on the show. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thanks, George. <laughs> So that was George Maxwell, who's um, a sessional lecturer, talking to us about uni. We'll be back after the break. Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au. Get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of 3CR. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Spring into Gardening is back this October. Hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and market stalls to help with planting and preparing your garden for summer. Spring into Gardening, Sunday, October the 14th at Victoria Gardens, Paran. Go to stonington.vic.gov.au for more details. A 3CR supporter. Okay, we've just been talking about the problems of staff at unis and pressure on them these days. And um, but relaxing out at Monash and not <laughs> is our old mate Professor Paddy Moriarty, who's um, in engineering out there. And and Paddy, I got you on today because there was an article in the last few days. Um, that the Queensland government has is backing plans for construction of a new power station in southeast Queensland, uh, which will be a waste to energy plant, a 400 million waste to energy plant. It can convert up to 500,000 tonnes of waste each year into 50 megawatts of baseload power, which they say could service a, a city like Cairns. Um, how do you do this? I mean, how do you turn waste to energy and is it is it really viable? Well, the first answer is simply how you turn it into energy. You just treat it it's sort of like burning coal, right? You just use a uh, thermal power station and uh, fire use the uh, waste to fire up a boiler to produce steam to turn a turbine to produce electricity. 
Oh, there you go. Well, that's it. That, yeah. That's the answer. <laughs> but, uh, okay, the well, it's <laughs> been good talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> the harder question, though, is, uh, is what does it all mean? Now, um, what's waste for a start? Now, um, this has to be organic waste, right? There's no point trying to burn tin cans in a, uh, in a power station. Yeah. So, um, now, what are the alternatives for waste? Well, one of them is re- recycling. Um, in other words, you know, there's paper recycling so that they can fit your uh, your letterbox with with the junk mail faster. That's a real improvement. Um, mm. The the other thing is, of course, uh, composting for the garden. If it's if it's organic waste, uh, you know, lawn cuttings and other greens and so on. So um, now you've also got to consider that if these wastes are just put in general uh, garbage and buried, then they're going to uh, convert to methane and carbon dioxide in the ground anyhow, especially if it's uh, anaerobic uh, decomposition, in other words, without much oxygen, they're going to produce methane, which is a, quite an effective greenhouse gas. Mm. So burning it does avoid that. Mm. Right. So in other words, there's really a double dividend. Um, one, you avoid uh, the decomposition um, greenhouse gases, and secondly, you save a bit of coal if you... Um, if you burn um, waste rather than uh, Queensland coal. So um, there are definite benefits for it. Another thing you have to worry about is um, pollutants in uh, the waste. Now, these wastes will be, although they'll be organic waste, they're a pretty hetero, uh, heterogeneous scheme. You've got to worry that you don't get things like, um, uh, uh, you know, um, various um, pollutants in, say, uh, well, if it's wood, for instance, it might be preservatives and so on. Mm. And so there's a whole lot of these you have to be pretty careful of in the um, exhaust emissions from um, waste mm. power stations. Indeed, this article says waste-to-energy plans have been pro- uh, proposed in Australia before, but there have been environmental concerns about the amount of pollution they create. A plan proposed in Sydney, which would have been the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, has been put on hold by the NSW government after concerns about air quality and health impacts of burning waste. Um, but the Palachak government and this company, Ramondas, which is the company who wants to do this, said they were confident the proposed plan would meet strict environmental standards. But you're saying this... I was going to ask you specifically, what are the environmental problems that might arise out of this? Well, as I say, um, there are, what's the, uh, you know, the Agent Orange contaminant? What was that again? I can't remember. Two four T that one, no, no, whatever know, it's called, anyhow, that one. Yeah, look, look, yeah. You, you you can um, you know at cost you, you can trap these pollutants. One of the problems is that compared with uh, coal, well, two things: um, wastes are a pretty heterogeneous uh, mix, right? Mm-hmm. So this makes uh, fine tuning of the uh, of the boiler pretty tricky. And secondly. Uh, all organic waste have a much lower energy content, uh, lower calorific value than coal. So you have to burn a lot more of it. They burn at a lower temperature and they don't produce as much power mm. per tonne of, um, uh, of material in. Also, they have a higher water content, which you've just got to boil off, as it were. And this is a trouble with brown coal as well. So, um, look, there are pluses and minuses. Uh, um, if they can do it, good on them. If they if they, if they can meet the uh, pollution standards, I mean there are mm. uh, there are um, uh, municipal solid waste uh, power plants around the world, mainly in Europe, I think. And um, one thing that they could be used for is to produce combined heat and power. This is used in 
combined heat and power is very common in Europe where you have one, our densely populated cities and second, uh, cold climates most of the year, right? So in other words, it doesn't really matter how efficient the electricity production is because the waste heat can then be um, uh, piped to uh, nearby uh, residences and uh, buildings. Oh, that's an interesting concept. How do they so? How do they well, send the heat without it cooling off in the well, journey? Well, that's it. You, you can't take it very far. Generally, right. it's got to be less than a few kilometres. Right. Um, this is what they do with um, burning uh, wood in Europe as well, or you know, poultry waste and so on. Mm. Um, so that's one of the. Of course, you've got to have it so that the power station can be located in the city limits, right? So it has to be pretty clean mm. if you're going to produce, because. Um, Say with um, motor vehicle exhaust, for instance, what you do is you get a densely populated city and then you have exhaust around <laughs> nose mm. height or lung height so people can breathe it in, right? right. <laughs> Which is not a good way of doing it. Yeah. No. So um, you, know, you have to make sure you have a pretty clean, clean power station. But that's an added benefit. Uh, maybe not so much in a warmer climate like you, mm. well, especially in <laughs> Queensland. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Promoting themselves. In fact, the blog from the company says there are hundreds of these waste plants throughout Europe, the USA and Asia, and many are part of the fabric of suburbs and communities. Uh, Paris, he names Paris, London, he names a whole lot of cities around the world and says, you know, they, obviously they work, he claims. Yep, mm. yep. Um, as I say, if they can meet the pollution standards, then they then the, the pluses will out, 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 outweigh the, the negatives. Yeah. How do they propose, or you know, in other, if you don't know the specifics, like how do other stations that do this kind of power actually um, divide out the usable waste from waste that can't be burnt? And you know, is there they, they must need like more awareness around how people put their waste in special waste bins or something, yeah, yeah, surely. Yeah, you think so, yeah. 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 Um, well, obviously garden waste would be one mm. uh, thing that they would use. Um, uh, cardboard and wood packaging, some of this won't be won't be domestic waste. They'll come from industry and so on, right? right. Especially uh, used lumber and so on, mm. uh, which you can burn. Yeah, because um, at the moment garden waste in lots of parts of Australia isn't collected, which is a shame because... It's very useful and can be actually turned into compost, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well. Obviously, the householders can do that themselves, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. In theory, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's yes. Um, mind you, waste are never going to be a, a significant part of uh, of the energy scene. It's like mm. um, uh, sewage waste. You know, uh, sewage gas. Mm-hmm. There's never going to. I mean, that's obviously a clean burning thing, and it's um, it's better than it being, you know, uh, admitted to the uh, to the atmosphere. If it's methane, this is methane, which is I think they actually do collect it at um, uh, at various um, sewage treatment stations. Uh, sorry, sewage treatment stations in in Australia, in Victoria, they do collect the gas and use oh. it for local um, to, for in-house power, or at least um, eating and so on. Oh, that's interesting. So, do you think that this idea that um, you know burning waste for fuel for power it it has this kind of idea like it's a really really wonderful thing and we're solving all the problems, but really it sort of like diverts attention from the real situation of how we could be using and and gain and getting energy in in truly sustainable ways. Well, this is as I say. Uh, the good thing about using, um, and the same applies with landfill gas, which is a related thing, right? Mm. Uh, a landfill gas is, is that's 
instead of burning it in a power station, you bury it and then you get the gas, right? Again, it's pretty mixed uh, competition and variable, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, heat content. So mm. it's, it's hard to burn efficiently. But there are places that do that. And again, this avoids it being, the, especially the methane, being released to the atmosphere. So you actually get a double dividend again. You avoid burning uh, fossil fuel natural gas, for instance, and you avoid the, the emissions to the atmosphere from the, uh, from the uh, decomposing wastes. Mm. So, so in other words, it's, it's whether you um, burn the waste beforehand, before you bury them, or after you can still collect it then. Yeah. Your reference to sewage waste, by the way, uh, Paddy, reminds me that in the last couple of days it's been resurrected again. Someone is suggesting we should look seriously at converting um, sewage water into pure water and bringing it back into our taps from the yeah, toilet the, to the tap, they say. Is, is that... Um, I mean, there's, people are, people object because they think, oh, no, I'm not going to drink my well, own piss or whatever. it's been done in a number yeah. of countries, recycled water. The idea is that you have... Um, uh, the world has a, a real fresh water problem, right? Um, you know, and the tech fix solutions are... Uh, uh, vert desalination is the, uh, is the key one. We're, we're hundreds of um, cities worldwide are now investing in, in uh, desalination plants. Um, with recycling water, the idea is that you can cascade it. In other words, um, for instance, in Japan, in, uh, in um, homes and so on, they, you wash your hands in clean water and that water then goes to fill the, uh, the system to flush your toilet, right? Mm. That's an obvious cascade. Um, so you can actually... You need water at various uh, levels of purity for, for different functions. If you're drinking it, you need it at a high level of purity, but... Um, you can use that wastewater for, well, for instance, um, using sullage water from um, washing machines and so on for your garden. That's that's mm. being acceptable. Drinking yeah. it, of course, is a it's a further step, uh, a further psychological step. Um, <laughs> but it, you you can in fact do it, and you should you know cascade it through its various uses and then purify it and start the cycle again. And this is, I think, this is going to have to catch on. Well, and also the sorry, Meg, we're going to say, no, 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 you go. Ahead. Uh, they, you know, I've argued for years. One of the you know the most the biggest waste of water we have is putting fresh water in our toilet system. I mean, we, surely we've got to come up with some system that allows you to recycle and use grey water, etc. There or no water. Or yeah, no or, yeah or or no water. water. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, um, it was. Uh, I think it was. Well, water closets have been around a long time. I think it was the English uh, engineer Crapper that developed <laughs> <laughs> the water closet. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that, that was his name. You <laughs> laugh every time, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean. Uh, I mean, it's got its advantages, and um, we love doing this. You know, we have a problem, we pull the handle, and the problem goes away. You know, that's, that's every child's dream, you know. So, but whether this is um, the way to actually dispose of waste in a, in a water-short um, world is another matter. Um, as I say, if we could use solid water or something, it would uh, certainly uh, mediate the problem a bit. Yeah, yeah, we um, and, and this is the thing about... Uh, what you know the reference before about composting and how people could do their own composting and again like with the water systems um, with just a little bit of retrofitting many houses can be more water secure if that's the right term but or just basically like a more of a closed loop system and you can yeah. like harness your own water but unfortunately there's not a lot of education and and very or like almost no kind of awareness on a on a well, legislative well, we or government level. At the, a larger thing our um, drainage system is the idea is to get fresh water 
that falls from the air, well, mm. nearly fresh. It's got to fall through the atmosphere. It's yeah. got to pick up all the, all the right. shit that's in the atmosphere. Gather a bit of pollution on the way yeah, down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then get it to the sea as fast as possible, right? And there's one a good reason for that, and that is to avoid floods. Uh, but, of course, what floods do, they recharge water tables, right? In other words, what cities need, and, in fact, in Europe they're sometimes doing this, is to have a lot more area of wetlands yes. so that the uh, water table can be recharged. Mm. Um, so, in other, words, uh, in other words, you can have um, above-ground storages, like, you know, all our dams and reservoirs in Melbourne and so on, but you can also have below-ground storage, and um, that's where wetlands come in. So we probably do need uh, more of these. Yeah, and... Yeah. Different parts of Melbourne have different sort of water ecosystems, don't they? Because um, certain areas are more mountainous and certain areas are just have mostly underground water reserves. Well, um, in engineering we speak of a, a water table. So there's water below the ground at various levels. It generally follows the contours of the, uh, of the surface, right? Mm. And uh, obviously where there's a river or a creek, then the water table is actually the, <laughs> the water level in the... In the um, in the river or creek, and it, the the water, the um, land on either side can either feed water into the into that uh, river if the if the water table is higher than the creek is in the river level, mm. or or the water can actually drain into the land, mm. uh, can leak uh, seep into the land if in fact the water table is lower there. Mm. So um, yeah, we need to consider both surface water and underground water, water together. Uh, just while we're on this, um, it's interesting about water efficiency. This is in agriculture. Um, there's been a lot of talk about trying to improve irrigation efficiency, in other words, lining uh, irrigation, irrigation canals and so on. What they find out is that uh, water leakage from irrigation canals generally finishes up somewhere else and, and is used, right? So you don't necessarily get any more fresh water by, <laughs> by lining the canals mm. if, it's, if you stop it being used downstream and so on. So you have to think in a, you know, a systems point of view for, for all this, for water, including for sewage and so on. Well, many years ago in Libya, I was taken to a, um, a, a place on the edge of the desert uh, where they were actually building, I don't know what happened to it in the end, but they were building a new dam in which they were actually bringing water up in from underground. It, well, there was hardly any rain there, um, and they were using the underground aquifers to, oh, yes. to uh, fill the dam. Yes, that's, uh, that's a fossil water. It's a, it was a, uh, built by the South Koreans, actually, uh, Libyan money. But yes, no, no that's in operation. The, uh, there's two giant pipes, I think, going north. Um, they pipe it in. It's, you know, whose water is it? It's sort of under northern Chad. You might remember that Libya, Libya was yeah. trying to control... This was getting Chad. down into that country anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they, and these, this is... Um, so that's where a lot of um, Libya's water comes from. It's fossil water. Uh, they were advised by a professor, a Libyan professor of civil engineering at Ohio University, I think it was. Um, look, I don't know how long it'll last for, um, but this is, as I say, fossil water. It's being... Uh, it was laying down when there was uh, when the Sahara had a higher rainfall than it does today, mm. and um, it's being used up. In fact, uh, using fossil water is one of the problems in a number of countries, including India, where um, India has thousands and thousands of uh, 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 tube wells with, uh, powered by electric pumps, and the water table is actually falling um, faster than it's being replenished. Right. So, in other mm. words, you have to, in some cases parts of the world, they're going down one kilometre to pump water. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I actually did a calculation a few years ago to show that there was a break-even point. If you were trying to grow biomass for energy 
and you're using irrigation water, then if you got down below, I think it was about 370 metres, then the amount of energy mm. it took to pump the water up would exactly balance the amount you got from burning. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's an old story. It's the cost of the energy to get the energy that yeah. uh, counts and really matters. That's why coal, of course, is so bloody cheap. Yeah, yeah, it does have a very good, um, what they call energy return on energy investment. Yeah, yeah. All right, Patrick, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but look, we might come back on this water thing because there's a lot more to talk about, I yep. think, in that area. And yep. uh, But thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. Righty, Dr. Oh, Professor Matty Moriarty there, and uh, always interesting. Mm. Uh, and, Meg, I mean, we, um, whoever the listener was who said they wanted more water, about water. We, we just about did it. We, di- we delivered. <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is how it works on City Limits. Yeah, just, just like that. And we had a listener <laughs> feedback saying, um, thank you for the great show, rediscussion about privatisation of energy. Um, can we use the word corporatisation instead that more accurately reflects what is happening? Well, water certainly is corporatised and not yeah. privatised, but it's still corporatised. Yeah. yeah, so a little um, bit of listener feedback that's there. That's right. Okay, well, we're out of time. But yep. next, well, next week, Meg, it's transport again. We're back to transport. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How time flies. It comes around. Okay, see you all next week. <laughs>